Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Six Degrees of Associations. I am your host, Lucas McCann. With me today, Sarah Wood. I would normally say who Sarah's with, but there's multiple here, and I want to let her talk a little bit about that. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I work at an AMC, uh, which is MSP Inc., based out of Rockville, Maryland, which means I work with uh, multiple associations. My, my primary two are the Public Media Business Association and the North American Association of Commencement Officers. I am the executive director of both of those organizations, and I'm also the deputy executive director of the Association of Water Technologies. So I don't have any shortage of work to do. <laughs> no, that's a two full-time positions and roles in the organi- in, in the industry. So it, this will be fun because uh, Sarah was very intentional that we don't overproduce the conversation right. here. So we're going to be very freeform, which I think is great. Um, but I do like asking the question, Sarah, how did you find uh, the world of associations? Kick us off there. Yeah. So I, I kind of came into it a way a lot of us did by total accident. Um, I, uh, graduated, I won't give the year I graduated cause that'll tip my age. But um, when I graduated college, um, I was just trying to find a job and get up on my feet and stay in the DC area and not have to move back home. And a family friend of mine said, Hey, we have a position over here at the national court reporters association. It's entry level, but you have this shiny new English degree and court reporters care a whole lot about English. So um, why don't you apply for this job in the certification and testing department? So I did, and I got the job, and I just kind of started doing the next job above it over and over again until by the time I left NCRA, I was their director of membership and marketing. Um, So NCRA definitely raised me up. But um, when I graduated school, I really wasn't looking specifically for associations. It just happened to be a good fit that fit with my own values when I graduated from school. Well, I'm I'm learning more and more, which I sometimes do in the pre-show, but all of the similarities, Sarah, between you and I, one, I also got into this by accident, although I do have some family history and association markets. A grandfather was an executive director, but I didn't intentionally seek it out in that regard. And I got into a position where I was also wearing multiple hats and learning different things. Two, uh, I also learned that while we're not giving the year, you and my wife went to the same university, college, uh, and graduated a year apart, but that will be a different conversation. All right, for you're going to have to tell me offline who she is because it's Ask a small enough school that I might actually know her. It's possible. It is a small school <laughs> and a great school. Um, we'll go into that. Um, so that's fascinating. So tell me what then you found it, you stumbled in. I think that's become a common trend across the show. Yeah. If you don't have a family member that brought you in and you grew up in it, that's typically how we find it or you know, something cause-based. What, what kept you here with us? So it, it really came down to what I want to put my energy into and what I want to have out in the world. So um, the thing that I love most about associations is that all of this energy that I expend, everything that I work on is going to help someone else in some capacity. Um, and that can be across industries, that can be on an individual level, that can be on a company level or an, a, a macro level. But I, I like the idea that all of the time and energy that I am spending and that I'm working on is going to help elevate someone else and helping to elevate um, their career or their profession. So um, it's a really rewarding job to be in. Um, And I just found that I really connected to the members. I connected to um, the mission that they were trying to accomplish. I connected to the fact that the time that I was spending was helping them be successful. And that was really rewarding for me. 
a lot of members are, that is their life, right? They're in their occupation mm -hmm. or they're running a, a business within an industry. And to a lot of extent, that might be the biggest thing in their life. And so in terms right. of relative significance, the association can have a dramatic impact. And so as I, as we did, we didn't, um, we didn't talk about anything pre-show. So I'll just, <laughs> now you're just going to be put on the spot. So what are some examples in, um, that you've had in your association career that really stand out to you and said, Hey, this was impactful. We ran a program. We did this for members, um, that you can point to and say, Hey, this is really, you know, filling me up you know, emotionally, spiritually for, you know, keep continuing this work. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about uh, one of my, my current groups that I work with, uh, Public Media Business Association. Um, they are not the on-screen talent or the producers of public media. Um, they're the ones that actually keep the lights on in, in the back. And one of the things that I really connected to, especially during the pandemic, was not only getting them the resources that they needed to be successful, because we, here we were in this really turbulent time. And I had this association full of media people on really small budgets, um, public media, some stations um, have more money than others, and they're really reliant on public funding. So um, the work that we did during the pandemic to really keep them going, um, and also all of their work connecting to like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, trying to keep all of that moving in a way that um, was least interrupting to business, so to speak. Um, that was, that was really rewarding to see. I mean, all of my clients are really rewarding. I don't want to, they're all going to hear this now and they're thinking I'm going to be picking a favorite. I'm not picking favorites. I want to make that really clear. There you right go. Now. I'm not picking a favorite here. We'll um, highlight that in the episode for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's really rewarding um, just to see how there was this, I mean, we were all in a time of crisis, um, but during that time of crisis, we were putting in all of these extra hours and it wasn't just with PMBA, it was with all of my clients. We were putting in all of this extra time, um, not just for um, some far off thing that we couldn't touch. These were actual people that had immediate needs and our job every day was to go in there and try to figure out what was up, what was down and how we were gonna get through this. Um, and while that was an exhausting experience, it was extremely rewarding at the same time. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that sort of um, in retrospect to that whole chaos situation, which was part. awful in so, <laughs> many, in so many ways. Um, but looking back, the exhaustion was real. But I am also finding it very rewarding and proud to be part of an industry that I think had a, an almost resurgence in, mm -hmm. in value um, to the memberships. Now, there are some that didn't make it, and that's really unfortunate, um, mostly smaller organizations, but I look across sort of the industry and can really point out oh, some yeah. Harvard, some Harvard business type reviews of oh, yeah. case studies on which not only do they just bring a ton of value back to the association market, but maybe more importantly, definitely more importantly, they brought a ton of value and, and saved some business and member organizations within them. Yeah. And I mean, um, one of my my other group, North American Association of Commencement Officers, they're the ones that um, run graduations, like actual commencements. Now, oh. just imagine you're in March of 2020. You're at a higher education institution. Everything shuts down and you have to plan graduation in May. 
Yuck. That was a, just a, kind of a, a nightmare situation for all of them. So yeah. when I started working with them was actually in June, right after their commencement had just happened. And here are all of these people. We were actually seeing an insurgence of, of members coming in because we really were the only place where all of the people could talk to each other. I mean, if you think about it, if you're the person on campus responsible for your um, commencement, there's really no one else who's doing that job. Like you don't have anyone else to talk to. So we had a lot of people come into the organization during that time because we were the only ones going like, so how are you, how are you doing this online? How are you getting people across the stage? Like, are, are you, do you have cars coming up? Like it was a, it was a really interesting time. And NACO ended up being this central place where all this information was just getting shared at a very rapid clip. That's amazing. I mean, that's a great example, right? About yeah. how, you know, just the collective power of people and community just coming together. And I know we're going to talk about some of that, you know, later in the show, but I, I just pointing out that example, I think is, is a perfect relevance of associations and how you can leverage all that information, collective knowledge, tribal knowledge, and, and sort of Absolutely. focus it in on helping an, an entire industry. It's amazing. So um, we did talk long enough pre-show that I found out you recently <laughs> did um, a very interesting keynote, and that was probably uh, maybe one of the first or the first opportunities you'd had yeah. on that uh, in that arena, in that stage, in that context. So tell us a little bit about that. So uh, yeah, I got to do my very first keynote presentation for the Mid-Atlantic Society of Association Executives back in June. Um, if any of you are listening, thank you so much for having me. It was really awesome being there. Um, but that that session was originally born um, out of another session that I did with three of my colleagues. Um, and that he was back in the fall of 2021. Um, we were going to another association event. Um, we decided to drive down. Um, Christina Llewellyn, she got her van together and I was with um, uh, Lindsay Curry and Nicola Rougeau. So if you know- I love this story folks. already. Yeah, so it was the four of us in a van, so we're already starting. Um, we're driving down to Association Charette in the mountains, and we find that, um, especially as younger women in the association space, we were talking about issues and, and problems that we were facing that were, um, I don't want to say completely unique to us, but they were leadership conversations that we really weren't having in other places. Um, and what we kind of learned from each other on that road trip was um, in many ways the most valuable part of the trip for us because it was six hours down, it was six hours back, and um, we just got to spend a lot of really good time together. And there was a lot of lot more crossover than we thought there was. So the four of us ended up doing um, a session at ASAE in uh, the summer of 2022 on that exact exact thing. And my section really focused on what it meant to be a modern leader, um, how things have changed. And um, with their permission, I kind of took that section and turned it into a more expanded talk, um, which I debuted with uh, Mid-Atlantic Society. So it was it was really cool to kind of see all of that come together. It was very organic, um, but it was it was a lot of fun to create. Well, again, to put you on the spot, if I asked you, would you be willing to do that again for any anybody out there that's listening? Would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Right, so, unintentional plug, but definitely a plug for Sarah. If you're interested <laughs> Thank in, in you. That, yeah, in no, that topic. I, I'd be happy to come speak for you. <laughs> well, now I want to talk a little bit more about what that meant. So give us just the high level. I don't want to give away the whole presentation, but you know, what was what was some of the inspiration? Maybe we'll start there. I think some of the inspiration, at least for me, is that 
the way we work is changing. Um, and it's not just a generational thing. I think some people like to blame like, oh, it's the millennials. And now we're blaming Gen Z. And in 20 years, we're going to blame Gen Alpha. People and love we keep having yeah. We keep having the same conversation over and over again. And I don't think that that's a necessarily productive thing to do. Um, I What I see changing are actual structures that are changing. Um, one thing that I talk about is this idea of white tower leadership, where in the past, you kind of had this Mad Men era style of there's the person at the top there in their corner office, and everything is the way it is, they're a little bit inaccessible. And that kind of structure that is starting to not necessarily serve associations in the way that it once did, it got us to where we needed to be. But um, especially with um, the way communities are changing, the way generations are changing the workforce. Um, what I'm finding is that this structure being more community driven is a lot more successful, that this inaccessibility of the top is not really serving its function anymore um, and creating different systems within your organization that are more community driven are being are much more successful these days. Yeah, you'd think in a market, uh, in an industry where a lot of decisions are seemingly made by committee that we would be, mm -hmm. you know, out in front of all of this and maybe to a lesser degree we are, but I 100% agree. So first of all, Mad Men wouldn't have been a successful series if there, if people didn't actually think there was some truth and relevance. And oh, that's sure. why it might as well have been black and white, uh, just to sort of further implement that that was a historical, I would say, I, you know, set up, um, but it is changing. I, I see organizations that even have dual leadership, um, you know, co-CEOs thinking more about succession planning. Um, there's been a dramatic rise in the representation, I would say specifically of females at the highest level within mm -hmm. associations. And we could point to several. I feel like if I started naming some, I'd be playing favorites. Um, but <laughs> but I have I have some of their books over here on my shelf. I'll just say sure. that as a point out. So I think it's so how do how do tell us more about what this looks like in modern leadership? So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, we talk about authenticity a lot, right? Where um, I think sometimes people misinterpret what we mean when we talk about that, or at least what I mean when I talk about that, because there's this assumption that being authentic means you're just unfiltered all the time, and that's that's not necessarily what that means. Um, to me, what showing up as an authentic leader means is being consistent with who you are and what you say and what you do, and also um, not necessarily holding yourself back. This doesn't necessarily mean you have to run in and, and talk about your divorce or what's going on with your kids. Like we're not, you know, there's you don't have to overshare, but um, at the same time, letting people know you isn't the bad thing that I think we once were taught it was. I know when I first started out in this industry, um, I was told that you have to keep everyone at an arm's length. Don't let people really get to know you. Like it's important that you do that. Otherwise people won't respect you. And I think one of the things that has changed structurally as a society is that, um, people are actually more skeptical of you if they don't let you, if you don't get to know them a little bit, um, that distance creates distrust and it can create structural problems that you don't intend. So it's not necessarily one way was good or one way was bad. It's just that, especially with the rise of social media and how we see each other online these days, the tolerance for inauthenticity or people coming off like they're just giving you a line, that doesn't really fly anymore. So if you're in a leadership position, letting people see you a little bit isn't necessarily a bad thing.
Yeah, trust, uh, I, it stands out in that to me, right? There's yes. lots of great references and books and more and more about the importance of trust. Again, I have some of those over on the shelf here. Um, and, and trust is something you have to build and then use, right? Mm -hmm. I, I want to build this relationship with you, Sarah, so that you trust what I say is the truth and that you don't take it the wrong way. Because if you just start spouting things right. off to people you've built it's no important. trust with, whether it's, whether it's genuine, whether it's authentic, it most likely won't be taken out of, it will be taken out of context to some degree, whether you know it or not. Absolutely. And what I found is if that, if a staff can't trust its leader, then all sorts of problems filter out from there. So, um, yeah, it, for me, authenticity is a big theme that I touch on. And, um, also just having, um, really good and appropriate boundaries with your staff. And that's what helps kind of reign in that thing where like, we don't need to be oversharing on all of our personal lives. We need to have good boundaries around that and healthy boundaries around that. But um, the other thing that I talk about within that is that when you're in a workspace, you're building a community, not necessarily a family. We like to use this phrase where like, we're building a family here. This is a family workplace. And right. I think I know what people mean when they say that, and I think they're well-intended. So I don't want to come off saying that people who use that are um, doing it in a bad way, but I think it unintentionally creates a toxic work environment because think about it, like for your family, I will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I will drive down I-95 and pick you up if you're in trouble, right? That's what yeah. you do for family. Right. And if you set up these expectations in your workspace that you are available all the time because family's always there for each other, it can create this toxic imbalance the way I prefer to look at it is you're building a community just like you would in, in your town, right. Where yeah. um, like, we're going to help each other out. Um, if someone's in trouble, we pull together, but we do go home at the end of the day and we do close the door and there is a break there. Um, and I find approaching it that way creates a little bit more of a healthy work culture. Yeah, I agree. And, and within a family um, there's a much higher threshold in my opinion for family on what's acceptable. Yes is, you know, my, my family could do almost no wrong, right? But the threshold is very high. Like to get kicked out of my family emotionally for me, you'd have to do something, you know, pretty severe. Within a right. community though, you have to be able to set a standard of excellence and hold mm -hmm. people accountable to that. Because if you aren't, you're really degrading trust from everybody else in the community, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's all about building and maintaining authentic trust, not only between you and your staff, but then your staff within each other. All right. So let's get, let's get tactical with that. How okay. does that, how does that get implemented within your organizations? Well, I mean, over time, trust is something that you can't really say, all right, here's the strategic plan for trust execute. And then in two months it's there. Um, it's maybe one of in those your private notebook, but I mean, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I will say that there are some practical things that I do in meetings and in, in with my staff and in expectations. Um, I am, I always try to be really transparent with where I am on things. Um, it's important to me that everyone on my team understands the big picture and how they fit into it. I think sometimes, um, we're like, oh, well, you don't need to know that piece because it's not your job. Well, maybe if they knew about that piece, they could do their job better, even if it's not their job, right? Yeah. So when I try to structure 
um, team meetings or try to structure um, anything that I'm doing, making everybody feel not only that they know what's going on, but then they're bought into the process, then they trust that they're actually getting everything from me. Um, and then that they, they trust that everyone else also has their pieces of the puzzle, right? So like, all right, you have this, I understand why you're doing it, how it affects me, but I don't have to worry about it. Um, and that kind of helps alleviate um, distrust within within teams. Yeah. Uh, tactically, I think about this quite often uh, yeah. in terms of how we build a culture. I think you nailed it, like transparency um, in a work environment. Um, so you also said you have to be, you know, there's transparency and personal transparency where you can go a little bit far. I think that's mm -hmm. absolutely correct. There is a level of, I, I do want to share with with folks that, you know, I'm a human, I think humanizing yeah. your own brand and personality to a degree is very, very important so that it's not just this top robot piece of people. Like you're, you're a human, you're an individual, you have thoughts, emotions, feelings, and all that. Um, professionally though, I think there's a much broader spectrum of what you can be transparent on and, and mm -hmm. it's 99% it's of it, right? I think there's really only 1% maybe that it needs to be behind the veil thin veil, even at that, that isn't, it's mostly because it's not relevant. Um, but right. otherwise I 100% agree. And, and so how do we, how do we start cross promoting or, or sharing within an organization, a, a staff association, what others are doing and, and what's the benefit there? I think it comes down to um, how you facilitate your meetings and being intentional about the meetings that you set. Um, what I notice a lot, and it can vary on the kind of staff meeting that I go to, there's, there's some have a really clear set of rules of engagement and agendas, some don't. And I think um, a, a really easy thing to do is setting expectations for those meetings, kind of what the, those rules of engagement are, um, making sure people that know that it's, a, it's safe to be transparent about what you're talking about. For example, um, transparency includes raising that flag when something is off the rails. Um, what I always tell my teams is that um, if something is going wrong, I will not be upset. I will be upset if you something is going wrong and you wait two weeks to tell me about it, right? Because then I can't help you. Like, don't hold it in. Like, I, if something went wrong, you forgot an email, something wasn't mailed out, like, whatever it was, people make mistakes. That's okay. We'll fix it. Don't hide it. So kind of creating that, like, it's all right if something if a mistake was made, that's okay. We will fix it together. Um, and then just having that really clear expectation of this is what I want from you. This is uh, how this is going to go and making people feel safe in that space. And I don't, I don't like using to safe space is kind of an overused term, but, um, but making people feel like if they speak up and do share everything that's going on, that they're, they're not going to get jumped on. Well, trusted space. Maybe we can just use your word. Trusted like space. We're, yeah. We've we've now created the new term. It's it's no longer safe space. It's a trusted space. I like that go. term. <laughs> I mean, I even have this sort of talk track with my kids. Like, hey, if you don't tell me something happened, you're going to be in way more trouble, right? So to speak, than if you just come to me and are honest. And you may still have some repercussions. That's not off the table, but. Sure. I'd rather know and be able to help you deal with it. I think the same goes for staff. Like, yeah, don't exactly. hold it in. Just come to me. Let's let's solve the problem together. I'd much rather you have that than not say there's a problem, not raise the flag, or maybe go try to solve it yourself if you 
maybe feel like you're not capable. I always tell them they have one hour to solve it themselves. Oh, uh, that's if they, good. If they, if they can't figure it out within an hour, and if it's something that's that's actually bad, just come and tell me. I, I'll, I'll help you. It's okay. Um, we'll figure it gonna, out. I'm not going to challenge you, Sarah, to write an article and post that on LinkedIn for our community called the one hour rule. The and then hour. I think, I think that's a great advice. I mean, Hey, you get one hour, whatever the time limit is, but, and if you can't after that hour, you have to bring it, you know, to leadership and right. let's do it together, but one hour to do it. That's good. And with the understanding that I will not chew you out if you bring it to me, because I think that's part of this older culture that I'm trying to undo where, um, there's this fear of like, oh, I've messed up. I'm in trouble. And um, people kind of have a little little trauma around that. And I try to create that space where like, it, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm going to help you. Just come to me with it. Yeah. There's there's some folks I think that have, you know, based on upbringing, work experience, yeah. there is a, there is, they were part of a toxic culture yep. where you couldn't bring these things up and you carry that with you. Um, yeah. And it's not a good thing. No. Um, and so it's really good to self-identify. And even if you're listening to this now, take a moment after the show to go, am I one of those people that just takes that with me? Do I have a fear that leadership mm -hmm. and, and also is that fear justified? You know, is that something right. that historically I'm taking be. with me or does this, <laughs> does this current leader trying to do something different? I think it's important to not only be a modern leader, as you said, but recognize whether you're with a modern leader. Yeah. Very, very true. What are what are other ways you can identify maybe if you are or or if you're with a modern leader? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, for me, I, I think some of that's like a gut reaction. Um, for I gut check people when I meet them is like, am I getting some sort of sales response from you that you're saying you're going? Are you going through your elevator pitch in your head of what you think you're supposed to say to me, or am I talking to an actual person reacting to what I'm saying? And a little bit of hmm. that is, is intuition. Um, sure. But uh, I, I think on a practical level, um, if you're on a staff, is when you reach out with a problem like that, how, how do people react to you? Um, are people clear with their expectations? Do they respect your boundaries between home and work? Obviously, we all have times where we have to work beyond our normal hours. But is this somebody who is expecting you to answer your email every single day at eight o'clock in the evening? Or is it someone who knows that that is an exception and not a rule? Um, is it someone who you feel like you can actually, people are like, oh, knock on my door anytime, I'm available. Do you actually feel like they're available? Or do you feel like they're saying that because they're supposed to say that because they're supposed to have an open door? Do you actually feel like you can walk in there anytime you need? So it's the kind of, again, back to authenticity, matching actions to words. Are the actions that people say that they're going to do matching up with what they actually do. Um, and if they don't, um, maybe there are more conversations you want to have about where you want to be. Yeah, I think there's some self recognition throughout that process. I don't know, maybe there are some people that are just born with that. Uh, and then there's other folks that have to work harder at that. Um, and along the way, we make mistakes in doing that. Sure. Uh, I certainly say I've made lots of mistakes. I say I have lots of scars from those things. I, I, you know, what's what's one mistake, Sarah, that you're willing to share that, you know, again, maybe can help our audience step over that stone that you or I stumbled on in, in sort of this growth leadership, modern leadership path? I don't know. 
so this is one that I think relates to staff and also members in general, associations in general. And it's a, it's kind of become the cl a cliche that we say in association spaces of meeting people where they are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my mistakes that I have made are not abiding by that. Because sometimes what we do as association people, we can see how it can be. We can see like, this is the finish line. And if only we did this certain stuff, we can get it there. But sometimes you're dealing with a team that isn't ready to be doing that yet. Sometimes you're dealing with a membership that doesn't want to be pushed that far yet. And it's having, and, and this is something that I've always worked on in my career, is having that self-recognition of, all right, slow down, slow your roll, don't go so fast, actually stop and listen to what people are saying. Um, I can't think of one with staff, but I definitely had an incident I won't call it an incident, but it was when I first became, it was my very first executive director gig. And um, I tried to restructure too much with their agenda and their meetings too soon. And the very first two meetings, it went fine, but very quickly they're like, well, we don't feel like this is the way it used to be. And like, it just started to spiral down. Mm. And I realized really fast that I made too big of a change too fast and that I should have slow walked that a whole lot more and it would have been able to be adopted a lot faster. Um, and I think that can be said with any sort of cultural change you're doing on your staff that um, you can't just walk in and say, I went to a session at ASAE, I learned all these new things, here's the flag in the ground, and now we have a different culture. Like that's not, that's not how any of this works, right? Um, it's, you have to always bring people along with you and while you're bringing, like make sure they're still with you in that process. Like you can't start like, all right, you're with me. And then you start running and then you look back and they're still at the starting line. So yeah. it's the, it's the constant, you got to check in and make sure people are still with you as you're making any sort of change cultural or, or otherwise. So that's great. I've, 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 I've made that mistake as well. I'll call <laughs> it. Um, so how do you now having gone through that, you learned the lesson, so to speak, is it for you more of an issue of, Hey, I really just need to cast the vision collectively for everybody and show them how we're going to get there? Or is it really, I just need to roll this out in baby steps? And do you have anything today that you do, whether formal or informal, to make sure you don't do that again? It's, it's a little column A, a little column B, because back to what I was saying before, I think it's really helpful for people to understand where we're going. Um, there's, I have a running joke with a friend of like, Number one, make a plan. Number two, do the plan. And those two things are deceptively difficult to do sometimes. Um, with any sort of big change, uh, having a really thought out plan of like the steps of how you're going to get there, sharing that with other people, and then having accountability along the way. Like not just here are the steps, but on this step, these are the people who are in charge and this is how it's going to go. Because I think what happens is people will get anxiety around change if they um, don't know what's coming next. So as long as I think people are more okay with change than you might think, as long as they feel like they're taken care of. So as long as it's that kind of communication of like, all right, we're doing this now, this is what we're worrying about now. And then this next thing is coming um, just so people know what, what they're expecting. Because most of the time, what I find is that when most uh disagreements or when things fall apart is when there are mismatched expectations. I expect one thing, they expect another thing, those things don't match, and then everything starts circling the drain. It's checking in all the time to make sure everyone's expectations are always the same, and that can alleviate a lot of, a lot of angst. 
Yeah, I feel like we've come full circle now back to transparency in my in my experience, casting the plan, the roadmap, what have you, implementing something that's definitely going to be a change. If you just force that through and never explain why, mm -hmm. then it won't make sense and people will be very resistant to it. I mean, some oh, people yeah. are resistant to change anyway. I think most people are, unfortunately. But I think it's mostly because you take a two-step process and that really needs to be, again, informally an eight-step process. Yes. I'm making up a number there. But you develop a plan, then you share the plan, then you listen for feedback, pivot the plan, and then take the plan and break it down into bite-sized pieces mm -hmm. and give everybody a role and an assignment so that they understand this is where we're going. This is my role in that plan. I know what Sarah's doing. I know what Kelly's doing. I know what Jim's doing. And it all, you know, transparently makes sense to get exactly. us to that goal and everybody's bought in and, and that's what makes things happen. And that's how we know whether it's also how we can measure whether we're being successful or not successful. Sure. And it's, it's one of those things that that sounds easy on the surface, but it's taking the time to meaningfully do that. That can sometimes be the part where you need to slow down because I know I have a tendency where I'm like, I just want to go. Like, I just want to go get the thing done. Let's, let's go to the thing. And the thing that I've had to learn in my career um, is to really slow down, bring everybody with you, make sure they understand what's going on. Um, and yeah, it's, it's uh, changed the way that I've worked with my teams. It's changed the way that I kind of look not only at, at managing, but also I deal with members and um, I, I've seen a lot of success with it. Yeah. What else should we know either about modern leadership or sort of next gen, you know, coming up into modern leadership? Mm. So I think I, I've definitely reached a point in my career where um, I'm trying to do a lot more mentoring myself. Um, I used to be on the other end of that. And uh, to all of my mentors out there, thank you for being with me as I was coming up in this industry. Um, I, I think it's, it's important to create space for that next generation to actually grow. Um, what I see sometimes in organizations is that um, someone in their 20s or early 30s will come in and either the old guard is threatened by them or they don't believe that they actually know what they're doing. And there are a lot of assumptions are made about that next generation of leadership. And from where I'm sitting, the more you invest in that next generation, the, the better off not only their life is, but the, the whole organization is um, because usually you have a lot of people that are hungry to learn. They um, have different perspectives that you may not have thought of. Um, and I always try to think back to where I was at 25 in this industry and how I felt and um, how uh, sometimes I felt like I was just kind of being pushed aside. And granted, I'm not saying that there is something to experience does help. I'm not saying that experience isn't valuable, but what I am saying is that the next generation is part of your community too. And as leaders, we have an obligation to uh, encourage them to grow, give them the tools and resources they need, and also give them space to go think and do things that might be new that you haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. We're still very young, obviously, Sarah. So this is this comment. Uh, we'll just roll I, with. Yeah, we'll just roll with what I'm last year. Yeah. We'll just roll with what I'm about to say. <laughs> is but as we as we gain more wisdom and experience in our roles in industry, um, you know what I found is giving up the things that we're not good at. Those are the easy yeah. ones, right? Because as you as you as you scale, as you grow within yourself, your career, your organization, um, you have to let things go. 
you yes. have to, you just, you have to give them up. And the, and the things that um, aren't easy, but are easier to give up are the things that I'm, that I'm I'll just speak for myself, that I'm not good at. Right. The harder things to give up are the things that I am good at. And maybe I know I'm good at. I've been told as a strength. Mm -hmm. That is the, oh, how do I let go of that? Yeah. And it, I think it's sometimes having the confidence that someone else taking over for you, something for you that, it, that you are good at, just having the confidence to be like, this is an opportunity for them. And I'm going to step back and I'm going to mentor them in this space, but this is going to be their thing now. And I'm going to become their biggest cheerleader. I'm going to become their biggest support. And I want them to be as good at this thing as I was, maybe even better. And a, a sign of success for me is if they're even better at the thing when I'm done. Um, and you're right. That's, that's hard because sometimes you see how it can be done and you just want to get your hands in there and you're like, I can just do this faster. Um, but taking that second to maybe step back and work with them instead um, it can be rewarding for all parties involved. Absolutely. And I love that notion of let them be better. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the only way we're going to evolve and grow and, and, and scale and do all those things is we all have to be better. And if the people that are coming up in the next generation are better than us, that's everybody's winning. That's what that we want, regard. right? So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I hate this portion of the show, but I have to wrap us up. Oh, no. Um, but as I do, I know it goes by. It goes by fast. We probably didn't even get to all the topics. Maybe we'll My do this goodness. again. I We could jump on and talk about you know this for hours, I believe. But um, as we do at the end of our show, Sarah, is there somebody in your network that you believe our audience would benefit from hearing from? All right. So I'm talking about next gen stuff and uh, mentoring. I'm going to nominate. Uh, he, I should probably tell him that I did this after we hang up here. Um, I'm going to nominate Brandon Lawrence. Um, he uh, worked with me at MSP for many years. He actually just recently went somewhere and became an executive director for the first time. Um, and uh, he's a great guy. And I think he'd be great on the show. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And thanks, Sarah, for your time and for joining us today and sharing some of your wisdom in modern leadership. You're very welcome. Glad to be here.